thinking about what to share about our setup here this morning. Uh, I don't know how to adequately describe this, but we should take a picture of it for posterity. We can look back on it one day and see God's faithfulness to us as a church and carrying us thus far. I was, uh, I almost, I almost thought that the setup ministry did this for Father's Day and, uh, thought better of it. But I think it was the graduation for Bell Intermediate. I think it kind of helps us in our LTF campaign. <laughs> All the more reason, a visual reason why we're praying for our own uh, worship room. So we don't have to, I don't have to preach on top of a sequenced uh, stage here. Um, well, just, uh, want to want to exhort you again uh, as Pastor Dan shared about the missions prayer night coming up in three weeks Saturday night we rented out this place for us to gather have a real just um, kind of a download time nothing really like loud and boisterous just music scripture reading and prayer where we come together and we do a huddle before we launch our efforts uh, this summer um, Collegians are going out to Mexico. We have a team of seven, nine, going out to Czech Republic. A team of seven going out to Czech Republic. And we have our OC missions outreach according to flock groups. And uh, each flock group going out and serving and observing. Serving and watching for opportunities for the gospel. Whether it's convalescent homes, foster care group homes, or washing cars, or just doing menial labor, or any kind of labor to serve our community, and asking God for opportunities to proclaim the gospel. Uh, All our flock groups will be doing that this summer. And um, we are well aware, unless the Lord builds, we build in vain. Unless the Lord watches, we watch in vain. For God to get all the glory, we must bathe our work, our efforts in prayer. Um, So, probably the most important thing we'll do this summer it's coming up on June 28th where we get on our knees and ask God for Him to go before us and for Him to uh, bless the work of our hands. So we humbly exhort you to gather that evening with hearts just ready to pray, ready to beseech the Lord, and ready to receive the blessings that He has in store for all those who call upon the Lord's name with a pure heart. Um, um, today is a special day, Father's Day, and I thought it was an opportune time for us to study a particular passage of scripture that is near and dear to my heart. There are four reasons why we're studying 1 Timothy 3, 4, and 5 this morning. And the first reason is because it is Father's Day. Um, An opportunity for for, for me behind the pulpit to address the men of our church, Um, all the men, we don't know God's will. God's will might be, you might say, hey, I'm 10 years old. You know, I don't have to worry about this. But God's will clearly might be for you to be a father one day and to be a leader of your home. And you want to be preparing today. You might be thinking, I'm single or I'm, you don't have children. You don't want to be presumptuous on God's will. God gave us the scriptures. And you're here hearing God's word today on this subject. Because God wants you to know these truths so that you might prepare if God's will be that you would be the leader of a family one day. Um, to address the fathers directly, um, so important for us to 
manifest these fruits as outlined in 1 Timothy 3, 4, and 5. So I thought, being a, being a Father's Day, good opportunity for us to study this passage. The second reason we're studying this is, first and foremost, I need to study for my own heart. Um, I'm preaching the sermon above all to myself. And I am the chief of all sinners. And in terms of falling short of being the Christian and husband and father I ought to be, or man ought to be, I am first in line. I am in desperate need of these truths. You have a very um, distorted view of James Shin. You do. You see me on the best hour of the week, right? You, you're getting my highlight reel, right? I'm actually like Radmanovich, but <laughs> you're only getting uh, the highlight reel, right? I'm like a Menga or, or who's the other guy? It's like Chris Mim who never plays, so there's no highlight reels of him. But all right, so you're getting just the best glimpses of, of me. And extrapolating that, that's how James must be throughout the week. But that's far from the truth. Um, the reality is, woefully, uh, wo- I woefully fall short of the standards declared in the scripture. So I'm studying it for myself. So if I'm, you know, getting into your kitchen and I'm offending you and hurting you, trust me, I'm hurting worse, right? Trust me, um, I'm much more offended than you are by the Word of God. I'm much more disturbed and unnerved by the standard of Scripture. Um, Doubly so because I'm always preaching above myself. If I'm preaching myself about a share, I'm the standard. I'm the standard of righteousness and faithfulness and godliness. Then I have no reason for humility. In fact, the pulpit becomes a source of my pride, of my arrogance. But as I strive to preach God's Word, and God's Word is holy and perfect, and I fall short, that's why I'm preaching above myself. And in that, in that way, the means of the ministry becomes a source of my humility, of my um, lowliness. And so know that I am preaching to myself, and we're learning together to grow in these areas. Third reason we're studying this is I want to enlist the wives of our church. I want to inform your hearts. I want to get you on our team and enlist you and help you to know that we're working together. We're on the same team. We're not trying to take your husbands away from you and your your family. Our agenda is really same as yours. We're on your, your side. We want to help your husbands grow more like Christ, more godly, more holy, more humble. And you will be the greatest beneficiary of that. And so I'm informing you this morning so that we can cooperate and work together. Your husband's service, ministry, and leadership in the church is not a threat to your husband's commitment to you and to your family. Wives, you and Cornerstone are not in competition with, against your husband, for your husband. We're not in competition. There is a great cooperation that the Bible calls us to, so for the procurement of your husband's maturity and godliness. 
serving in the church, leading in the church also, will not hinder him from serving in the family, leading in the family. In fact, it will help him. It will constrain him, compel him to be a better husband, father, leader of the home. And I know where you get this from, because your husband's time is limited, energy is limited, and there's so many things that are begging or begging for his attention and robbing and taking him away from you and your family. Work is definitely a key um, responsibility that takes him away from you. And there are hobbies that he's involved in that takes him away from your family and has very little or no benefit to you. Very little or no benefit to the children. It's just him just wasting time on himself. And, uh, and he has friends that are not good friends, good influences. And the time that he invests or spends with them have little or no benefit to you. And so you're left with leftovers and you hear a cornerstone once more of your husband's time. He's, you want a cornerstone, he's, he's getting an interest in serving cornerstone or growing there or, or serving or leading there. And you think, no, this little you know, slice of pie I've left of my husband, if I lose him to the church then I'm just going to get crumbs off the table. Our children are going to get even less. And so you maybe resist his involvement to the church. Well, it might be true of work, most likely true of hobbies, possibly true of ungodly friends. But it is not true of Christ's church. It is not. Christ's church is a means of God's grace. To change your husband from being inward focused, self-centered, to being God-centered. And God's heart is that after him, it would be his wife and his children and then the church. And because Cornerstone, we strive to be in line with the scriptures That is our desire as well. So, our goal, our ambition as leaders of the church is to make your husbands more Christ-like, more God-centered, and thus more of a loving leader at home. That he won't be restless. He'll be at rest at home. He will love you more, serve you more, listen to you more, talk to you more, uh, care for your children's souls more. And in this way, we're not a threat. We're not in competition. We're, in fact, we're allies working together. This is not just what the Scripture teaches. It is, the, it is my own experience. It is my own experience. As I've grown in Christ and experienced ministering the church, The church has helped me not to worship the family, but to worship God and lead the family to God. Such a difference. In my sinfulness, my selfishness, I was prone to worshiping family. Like Marriage is the ultimate pursuit of life. Singleness is to be avoided. Family is the ultimate end of life. And I, through the church, I came to realize through God's grace, Family is not the end. 
Family is not worthy to be worshipped. Family is but one means to an end of worship of God. And as a leader of the family, my job is not to worship my family. My job is to help my family take their eyes off themselves and worship God. I've experienced through the ministry, through ministering in the church, serving in the church, not to idolize my children, but to love Christ and shepherd my children to Christ. And it is here at Cornerstone, I've learned not to fear my wife. I love my wife, but you know all men have fear of women, right? Ever since we were in kindergarten, right? They just they were like taller than us, <laughs> stronger than us. It was not until high school we were able to kind of you know look down on them literally, physically. And by then it was too late because they were smarter than us. By then they could talk better, they got better grades, they actually like could write better, legibly. I mean, everything they could do better. Right? And then we become Christians and, you know, they pray more, they know the Bible more, they come to church early and leave late. I mean, everything. So they're so righteous in so many ways. And there is just this uh, innate passivity ingrained in men. We see it in Adam. We talked about that weeks ago. And it comes down to us. And I brought that into our marriage. It was unwarranted for me to fear my wife, but because of my sin in my flesh, that was my response. But through ministering in the church, serving in the church, through godly men and their examples and their instructions to me, I grew in not fearing my wife, but fearing God and truly, genuinely loving her, loving her soul, caring for her heart. So, Scripture, implications of Scripture, and my own experience, and I'm sure for many of you, your own experience confirms this to be, the, this be, this to be true. Truth. So, the third reason we're studying this is employ the wives. You know, fear your husbands being workaholics. That should be a concern. Fear your husbands getting ensnared by amusement, entertainment. Right, worldly pursuits, just hobbies that have no real redeeming value. You fear that and you see your husbands being ensnared and, and taken away by these things. You fear that and be on your knees and you help him, you admonish, you encourage, you exhort him against these things. Um, definitely be wary of ungodly friends who um, sow seeds of discord in your relationship. But, but do not have that fear transferred to the church because we're on the same team, we're on the same side, we're allies and our agenda is the same as yours and if it's carried out, it'll result in your husband's loving you more, being a better leader. Ultimately, your, your family will be more blessed. And the fourth reason for our study is we need more, we need men to continue to grow. We're just so thankful for the men of our church. Uh, I'm not just puffing you guys up, but, you know, I know, I don't know, we might sound, we have a reputation I was talking to, you know, someone, see that right there. No. <laughs> I was talking to Dan, he was saying, yeah, Kronos has a little reputation of just constantly rebuking and being harsh. And, and Dan says, it's not true, it's not, you know, but people hear our sermons and, wow, man, 
Bob and James, they're always just like, you know, beating on the sheep. And you guys know us, we don't, right? And so, and it might sound like we like, you know, look down on you guys at all, some, or we rebuke you a lot. But you know, the, honor, the truth is we esteem you highly. We thank God for you, men and women. We are tremendously uh, thankful to God and humbled and encouraged by your love for the Lord, love for Christ church, and how you continue to grow in Christ. But at the same time, we need more maturity from our men because the weight of ministry is getting heavier and heavier, and we need more men to push, more men to lift, more men to carry the burden. Um, For the elders and the pastors, we are maxed out. And the flock shepherds, we are maxed out. And short of taking spiritual steroids, we can't do it. So we just need more men to come under this load and carry the load of ministry in the church with us. So we need more leaders. And for men to grow in spiritual leadership in the church, the training ground, the place to uh, be trained to exercise leadership is not in seminary. It's not in short-term missions. It's not by going to Mexico. The way to be trained, to be an excellent servant and leader in the church, is in the family. Is in the family. And if you're single, in your own life. That's the training ground. Because that is the real world. It's not artificial. Seminary is artificial. It's fake. Right? If you're a you know, halfway smart person, you can sit down well, and you can type really fast and listen well and regurgitate information, you'll get a 4.0, right? I, never, I didn't even come close, right? <laughs> but you'll get a 4.0. Short-term missions, it's artificial. Anybody can be godly for three weeks or two weeks or one week. Anybody can show up and just perform, right? Drink Red Bull in the morning and just out of the flesh pretend to be godly and do all that's required of you and say everything perfectly for a week, two, three, three weeks. It's artificial. Anybody can do that. But you can't wing your personal life. You can't take shortcuts with your wife. You can't. I tried. It doesn't work. You can't take shortcuts. right? And you can't take shortcuts with your children. What you sow, so you shall reap. Right? Period. We wish we could just take them to a nice Christian school or take them to a nice Sunday school ministry in the church or take them to a nice retreat and all of a sudden just magically something happens. But that's not the reality. What you sow, that you shall reap. It's, it's too real. It's too honest. It's brutally honest to us. Our own lives, our, our wives and our, our children. And thus, that is a training ground where God humbles us, causes us to see ourselves in reality. You know, the world is always lying to us. Our wealth lies to us. Our success at work lies to us. Even public ministry lies to us. Our friends lie to us. Our world lies to us. To, To get to the truth is so hard. It's so difficult to see ourselves rightly. And so God designed our lives and our families for that purpose, to tell us the truth about who we are, so that we might 
put ourselves to spiritual disciplines of godly character, and doing that will result in effective ministry in the church. So, it is for these four reasons we're studying this topic this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. We know this passage. Here Paul is outlining for his son in the faith, his emissary Timothy, as he oversees several churches in Ephesus, to know what to look for in those who would be elders in the church. And he highlights in verse 4, this, um, this criterion, verse 4 and 5. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? How will he care for God's church? Paul here gives us a definitive test that shows whether a man is qualified to lead in the church. A definitive test. You want to see, you want to know whether this man is a true spiritual leader? Look at his family. Observe his wife. Observe his children. A man desires to serve and lead in the church. He claims to be above reproach. A one-woman man able to teach. He seems to have his life together. He seems to know the scriptures. How is his claim tested? What is his credential? What are the verifying evidences that show that this is true? Paul tells us he must be a man with proven family leadership. Proven family leadership. The man who is to lead the church must exhibit leadership, integrity, and dignity in his own home. If he can do it there, he can do it in the church. This is the supreme test of what a man really is. What is he at home? Christian faith first must first be proven at home. It's private life and then public life. I read this quote years ago. Jim Carrey said this. Uh, Behind every great man is a woman rolling her eyes. Right? Might be true in the world. Right? It's a great man giving a speech and his wife is, yeah, right. You know, he can't take him seriously. He doesn't believe him. She doesn't believe him. Right? Because she knows his private life, she doesn't take him seriously. That might be true in the world, but must not be true for Christians, for leaders in the church, and most definitely elders in the church. There was a character in John Bunyan's book, Pilgrim's Progress. His name is Talkative. And people of the world described him thus, a saint abroad and a devil at home. Right. That is 
how the world describes you, your wife or children, then um, you're not passing the test. Because a man's Christian doctrine and man's life is tested in his home. And Pastor MacArthur said this, and I think first two years of, our mar- of my marriage, I had this quote on, the, on my study desk, right in front of my desk, to remind me um, of the truthfulness of this uh, test and how, how my ministry begins and ends at home. This is the quote. If you want to know whether a man lives an exemplary life, whether he is consistent, whether he can teach and model the truth, whether he can lead people to salvation, to holiness, and to serve God, then look at the most intimate relationships in his life and see if he can do it there. Look at his family and you will find the people who know him best, who scrutinize him most closely. Ask them about the kind of man he is. This was a daily reminder to me that I cannot vouch for my own doctrine. I cannot vouch for my own character of my own life. No, my family does that. So we need to make this a habit. Talking to our wives and and begging for truth. No, am I consistent? Am I a man of integrity? Do you see godliness, humility in my life? In what areas am I falling short as a husband? How do I disappoint you? How do I discourage you? How do I offend you? How do I provoke you to anger? How am I feeling as a father? And what blind spots do you see in my life? What, what do I have on my face? Bob and I were talking recently, and I think it was for their anniversary. They went out on dinner, and Bob asked that question. We make this a habit, right? On special occasions, not a time when vacations come around. It's not a time just to have fun and waste it, but a time to invest in our relationship, because this is where we are tested, and our the reality of our life, doctrine, and character is revealed. Um. Let me give, share with you four reasons why this qualification is so important. Four reasons why this qualification is so important. First of all, it's important because Scripture teaches this clearly and forcefully. It's, it's explicit in the Scriptures. It's not an implication from a principle. It is not an obtuse point found in the book of Ezekiel, right? Or book of Revelation, right? right. No, it's, it's right there in the middle. It's like page one, right? It's right there. Um, he must manage his own household well. It's clear. With all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church the logic is elementary. It's philosophy 101. Right. 
If he can't do it in a micro level, how is he going to do it in a macro level? Argument from lesser to greater. Junior high logic. Elementary logic. The other passage is found in Titus 1.6. An elder must be blameless, the husband of one wife, a man whose children who are faithful, children who are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. And I don't want to get into the interpretive issue there, but over the many years, the uh, past five, ten years, there's a clear consensus that that verse means faithful, not believe. And if you, and we can talk about it afterwards, um, there's children who are loyal. Their hearts are with their parents and hearts are with their father. And they're not open to the charge of being wild, unruly, given to dissipation. Right? Children who are out of control. The kind of children that you don't want to overhead your home because they'll destroy things. Right? They'll mark things up. Right? They'll treat your home like their home. And you've seen their home. So you know what the children are about. They're not under the oversight of the parents. They're not loyal to the parents. They have a will of themselves. And because they're foolish, they're out of control. Right? They're disobedient. They're unruly. They're wild. The Bible is clear, clear that if children are out of control and the wife is out of control, uh, the buck stops with the father, with the husband. Right? It's him. Right? He can't blame the, the child. Oh, it's you know sugar high, you know. Oh, it's because you know it's not enough this or not enough that. Or my wife, or just her parents, you know, she's a victim. No. The buck stops with the husband, with the man. The second reason this is so important is because it is so important to the leaders of our church. This is what God has placed in our hearts and in my heart. For me, my family, I'm passionate for my family. And so, as a member of our church and as a leader, if you're not passionate for your wife, if you don't love your family, love your children, there is a disconnect, there is a disunity on a, on a very doctrinal level and a practical level where there is not this unity because my heart is with my family. I first saw this in the scriptures and I saw the example of this in godly men and I saw the beauty of it. Wow, when I saw John Coe with his wife and children, John Smith Sr. dating his wife, taking her out to breakfast and talking to her, courting her after all these years, I saw the beauty of that. And God placed it in my heart. And therefore, I, my life pursuit is that my first ministry is to my family. And it kind of comes from my uh, parachurch origins. When I was involved in a campus ministry, uh, we were taught, and the model was, family is a hindrance to ministry. So they discouraged dating, discouraged getting married, and discouraged having children, and having many children. And they, they gave you the idea that 
wife will slow you down, children will be in excess weight, family will keep you from being effective for the Lord. And I saw over the years the outworkings of that mindset and how distasteful it was. So, the second reason is, it is so important for the life of our church because it is important to me and all the leaders of our church. So if you want to understand Cornerstone, understand this. Understand what our passion is. You know, I might have given a miss you know, giving you guys a wrong understanding. And I don't go on dates with my children. Right? If they want to buy me pho, okay, I'll go on a date with you. Right? If you want to buy me a meal, anytime. But I don't date my kids. I date my wife. Right? If I have a free night, I'm not going to go out with Emma. Right? Are you crazy? I'm going to go out with my wife. Right? One day a guy will come along and maybe take Emma. If he knows better, he won't. But if he's not, you know, I'm just kidding, right? One day a guy will come, right? But my relationship till death was part is with my wife. So I, we tell our kids, I'm not going to go with you, Elizabeth. I'm not going to go out with you, Emma. I'm not go out with mom. We go out. Where are you guys going? We're going on a date because we love each other. That's husband and wife. You guys stay home and obey your babysitter, right? <laughs> my heart's with my wife. I, you know, um... You know, I, I don't know if I, I love talking to my wife. I love listening to, you know, listening to her. And I just ask questions because, you know, who did you talk to? What did, what did you see? You know, how are the kids? Because that's my leadership in the home. That's me shepherding the home or trying to, right? My wife is not an obstacle to ministry. It's not a hindrance. It's not baggage. Really, it, it is one of the reasons for the blessings of Cornerstone because God has given this to me and to Bob and all the pastors and leaders of our church because we see we minister through our family, not around our family. Right? By, by loving our wives, shepherding them, we are learning how to shepherd you. Right? By loving them, we're learning how to love you. By caring for them, we're learning how to care for you. Third reason, this is so important, is because this might possibly be the most neglected qualification for elders in the church today. Modern Christian church seems to have widened out verses 4 and 5 in 1 Timothy 3. So many Christian leaders neglect their wives. I heard of a pastor that I know and heard of his wife and she's so discouraged and she's not content because he's never home. He's out every night of the week doing ministry and he doesn't even know where he is and what he's doing. He's running around doing all these things in the community and she's home alone with the kids and her heart, her soul is neglected. That saddens my heart. Right, not in our church, of course. I have birds in my heart. So I know that's not God's will. Right. I've served in youth ministry too long enough, youth ministry long enough to know that often the pastor's children or the elders' children are the worst of the lot. Right. 
like you go to a youth camp and you pretty soon you realize you find out who the who are the elders kids you know who are the pastor's children Fourth reason why this is so important is because the elders set the example for the whole church. The future of the church is dependent on them. That's why Paul begins with the elders. Because the leaders of the church are a preview of the future of the church. You want to know what Cornerstone will look like in five, ten years? Look at the Shin family. Look at my life. Look at Bob's life and his family. Look at the Denny's, the Nas, the Jungs. Look at your flock shepherds and how they are, what's in their hearts, how they're leading the home. And that's us in five years. Right? So if you see good things, well, we have good things ahead of us. But if you see bad fruit, we have bad things ahead of us. Right? I know this. We know this starts with the elders and it goes down to each man and each husband. We are privileged to uh, participate and, and see God's grace on Daniel and Pam yesterday. They were wed and um, we rejoice with them. You know, so, so encouraged. I, I don't know, I didn't plan to share, share briefly. I was encouraged by, uh, every time I marry people, I, I'm I'm so privileged in my life to uh, just share in that special time and learn about the, the, the couple and be so blessed by their pursuit of Christ. I, I didn't know this, but to know that Pam, when she professed faith in college, her parents, I think, threatened to kick you out of the house, or they did. And uh, they threatened to uh, cut off all funding for her school, schooling hoping that that will cause her to recant her faith in Christ and uh, deny the Lord. But she didn't. She stood her ground, stood her, stood her faith firmly. Wow, that's like so awesome. And then I was talking to Daniel about, you know, beginnings of their relationship. And Daniel said his heart was close to her from the beginning, in the beginning because he didn't know if she loved Cornerstone she was a law student. She would leave right after flock, leave right after service. So, you know, he knew she loved the teaching, loved the doctrine, but she didn't know, he didn't know if she loved Cornerstone. And because Daniel loved Cornerstone so much, his wife had to love Cornerstone, someone he was pursuing. And his heart changed when he saw her love for Christ Church here. Right. So yesterday we're gathering together 30 minutes before... Uh, I was going to sweat for another hour. Um, it was warm wedding yesterday. And uh, we're praying in that room. And I'm, I'm praying for them. In my heart, I'm praying for Daniel. For all the husbands who've been married here at Cornerstone, that's what we did and we're going to do for you. We're praying for the man because it's all up to you. If you, right, drop the ball, if you go one for nine, right, if you shoot 6 for 19, right, disappointment, discontentment, anger, frustration. Right? But if you are faithful in your, in your duties, if you're diligent, if you love Christ and fulfill your, 
God-given responsibility in the home, then your family has a fighting chance to grow in Christ. So four reasons why this is so crucial. Let's uh, walk through verses 4 and 5. The first clause, if you will, he must manage his own household. Notice the word must. An absolute qualification. A requirement of God. Not ought, not should, he must. The word is manage. It means to rule, oversee, lead. Includes the idea of having the ability to give comprehensive and specific oversight to preside and to manage. The phrase also points to the priority of his own household. He must manage his own household. He must not be so busy caring for other people's families that he neglects his own family. He neglects, the, he neglects his own family because he prioritizes the church. That's the opposite. The must is his own household. And out of the overflow of that, he cares for others. He must not neglect his own family using the excuse of busyness of life or busyness of ministry. He must not be so busy providing leadership to the church or other families that he fails to first lead his own family. So household is, if you're single, it's your own life. If you're married, it means you and your wife. Children, it means your whole family. It's not just talking about physical leadership where you provide shelter, clothes, and food, but it speaks of the physical aspects. Definitely, that's basic. Everyone does that. Non-Christian husbands and fathers do that. But as Christian men, more than that, we provide spiritual leadership. We are intentional. We, we, we care. We shepherd. We serve. We lead. We lay ourselves down and we lead. So someone asked me, so I'll share it with you. Um, they asked me when, James, your dad passed away and you had to lead the funeral. How did you do that? And I said, well, looking back, by God's grace, I knew I have to provide leadership. I'm the husband. I can't, also just to my wife. I can't give that responsibility to my mom. I'm a Christian. I'm the son. I want to make sure the funeral is God-honoring. I want to make sure the gospel is preached. I want to make sure my dad's friends hear the gospel. I want to make sure my mom is protected and cared for. My wife and children are ministered to. So I have to provide that spiritual leadership. So for that week, right, provide that leadership. And I told that, told my friend, I broke down and cried three days after the funeral. But not that week, not at the funeral, because I'm leading. I'm shepherding. I'm ministering. Now after it's all done, okay, I can have my own time and grieve and mourn for my, myself. But that's what husbands are called to do. Right? He sets himself aside and he manages his own family well. He tends to his wife's needs and his children's needs and then himself and then the church. Right? 
Secondly, verse 4, he must manage his own household well. The Greek word there is koloss. Hence the title of the message. There's two words for good in the Greek, agathos and koloss. Agathos is the objective good, right? The principled good. Truth, like right and wrong. Koloss is the word for beautiful, like kaleidoscope. So we get the word, the root word koloss. So he must rule not as a tyrant, not as a dictator. He's leading. Do this, do that, wash dishes. You know, go vacuum, you know, pay this bill and, you know, serve this way. That's not ruling well. You know what, you know, dictators do that. Tyrants do that. They, they do it ably. A Christian husband, he rules beautifully. Right? He manages excellently. He does it graciously, humbly, gently. He does it modeling these things. And where his wife sees his beautiful leadership, children see it, and the, the church sees it, and the world sees it. Right? It's a selfless leadership. It's a caring, loving leadership. Leadership in the home and in the church is wholly different than leadership in the government, at work, or in sports. Right? And a lot of guys bring that kind of mindset and bring it at home, and they fail miserably. Right. Because that's not what that's not how God leads, that's not how Christ leads us. Right? That's not how we are to lead our own families. Also, thirdly, manage is a present participle where the current state of one's household is in order. There is a sense of continual oversight. Not a one-time effort, but a day-in and day-out oversight of the family. He does this, and he leads his children as well. Fourthly, keeping his children submissive. Here Paul focuses on the children of the elders. His children become Evidence, clear evidence of his spiritual leadership done privately at home. The word submissive is the idea of under control. They're in subjection. They're their idea of obedience. The obvious implication is that his family is orderly. They're disciplined. They're obedient. And the children's obedience to the father reveals his ability in leadership where he is making sure his children respect and obey him and his, mom and his wife. His children respect and obey their mother. Making sure his children obey and respect all authorities whether police officers Sunday school teachers, babysitters, children are respecting them and obeying them, are submissive to them. Grandparents, older siblings, church leaders, so on and so on. And he does this with all dignity. He's not threatening them. You obey or I'm going to 
knock you the next Tuesday, you know? Come here and chasing the kid around, right? With a fly swatter and just in an undignified manner, trying to manage his own family. You see a leader that way, that's not respectable. With, with firmness, with gentleness, with he's dignified in the manner he leads his family and his children follow. The bottom line question for the man is, how is he as a father? What kind of father is he at home? Is he a godly man, an able father, an effective father? I read this in uh, R. Kent Hughes' book, Disciplines of a Godly Man. He's a father of one, a father of three, grandfather of six. His... uh, Bible knowledge and life knowledge far surpasses mine, so I'll just read an excerpt from his book about the power of fathers over children. He writes, Men, the mere fact of fatherhood has endowed you with terrifying power in the lives of your sons and daughters because they have an innate God-given passion for you. He quotes Lance Morrow's book, The Chief, a memoir of fathers and sons. From time to time, I have felt for my father a longing that was almost physical. Something infantile and profound. It has bewildered me, even thrown me into depression. It is mysterious to me exactly what it is I wanted from my father. I have seen this longing in other men. And see it now in my own sons. They're longing for me. I think that I have glimpsed it once or twice in my father's feelings about his father. One seeks to return not to the womb, but to a different thing. A father's sponsorship in the world. A boy wants the aura and armament of his father. It is a deep yearning that is sometimes a little sad a common enough masculine trait that is also vaguely unmanly. What surprises me is how angry a man becomes sometimes in the grip of what is, in essence, an unrequited passion. R. Kent Hughes continues, Our sons naturally want us. Perhaps, man, you have experienced something like this. You have just finished the run. You are sitting on the porch sweating like a horse and smelling like one and your son or perhaps a little neighbor boy sits down next to you, leans against you and he says, you smell good. This is the primal longing for one's father and our daughter's hearts are naturally turned toward ours with parallel longings. The terrible fact is we can either grace our children or damn them with unrequited wounds which never seem to heal. Our society is awash with millions of daughters pathetically seeking the affection of their fathers that their fathers never gave them. And some of these daughters are at the sunset of their lives. In the extreme, there are myriads of sons who were denied a healthy same-sex relationship with their father and now are spending the rest of their lives in search of their sexual identity via perversion and immorality. 
men as fathers, you have such power. You will have this terrible power until you die, like it or not. In your attitude toward authority, in your attitude toward women, in your regard for God and the church, you wield this power over your children. What terrifying responsibilities. This is truly the power of life and death. For these reasons, we live in a time of great social crisis. Whole segments of our society are bereft of male leadership. At the other end of the scale, there are strong men who give their best leadership to the marketplace, but they utterly fail at home. We are the men. And if God's purpose does not happen with the sons of the church, it will not happen. And he concludes, Men, there are few places where sanctified sweat will show greater dividends then in fathering, if you are willing to work at it, you can be a good father. If you are willing to sweat, you will see abundant blessing. That power is given to all fathers. A terrifying power. And with that power, we either grace our wives and our children or as Arkan you said, we damn them. We curse them. That is why, one of verse 5, Paul uses rhetorical argument, somewhat of an absurd argument, to drive home the point of how important it is for a man to manage his own household, to lead his whole family, if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? If a man can't parent, if a man can't lead his own wife, if he can't lead his own children, if he can't manage his own one family, how is he going to manage the church? So to me, ministry is very simple. I see a clear parallel between the family and the church. Helps me how to understand how, how I'm about to minister in the church, how I'm about to lead, how I'm about to care and serve. Because a direct parallel between these institutions created by God. And as I grow in leadership at home, it'll only... Uh, result in greater leadership in the church. That's the argument Paul makes. If you can't do micromanagement, how can you do macromanagement? God made this argument against Israel in Jeremiah 12.5. If you have raced with men on foot and they have worn you out, how can you compete with horses? If you stumble and save country, how will you manage in the thickets by the Jordan? God's saying, if you can't take care of your own life, how can you take care of the church? We see Eli's failure in leading Israel by his failure to lead his own family. 1 Samuel 2.12, it says, The sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. Why? 
3.13, 1 Samuel, because Eli failed to restrain them. Eli failed to restrain them. Three closing thoughts. Firstly, directed from this passage and this chapter, we must have a high view of the church and church leadership. High standards for our church leaders. And it must be a standard not imposed by the church, the leaders, but it must be standards that leaders impose on themselves by the Word of God. Right? I must be harsher on myself by the Word of God than you are towards me. Right? And so all the pastors, elders, flock shepherds, our standards must be higher than the church's standards given toward us. Well, we don't fear the church, what you might think of us and our wives and our family because our standards are higher. Does that make sense? Right? My standards for a good sermon must be far higher than your standards for a good sermon. After I preach, I mean, honestly, I don't... What, what did you think? Did it make sense? Was it a good sermon? Did it help you? Right? And if you say, yes, it was, doesn't help me at all. Right? Because my standards that I strive for are so much higher because of the Word of God, whether it's preaching, shepherding, my own life, my family. Right? So high standards are self-placed, right? self-observed by the Word of God. Secondly, is your priority to your own family? You prioritize your own family for spiritual leadership, for oversight of caring. And as Christians, um, how do we provide spiritual leadership that is different from the world? We provide spiritual leadership by saying the difficult things by saying the things that are hard, that are humbling, that are difficult. We must do both. We must encourage, but also correct. And that is a proof of our leadership in our own lives. Can you rebuke yourself? Can you correct yourself? Or do you have the wrong view of yourself? You're just applauding yourself, patting yourself on the back all the time. And you're not leading your heart. You're not shepherding your heart. You're following your heart. You're deceived by your heart. And if all you're doing is applauding your family and and encouraging them and saying the good things, that's not spiritual leadership. Are you doing both? I was reading this week, uh, Luke, and in chapter 2, verse 34, um, Simeon is in the temple and God promised him that he will see the Messiah. Joseph and Mary bring Jesus to the temple and he holds Jesus, and he says in verse 34, This child is appointed for the falling and rising of many in the nation of Israel. And that's exactly what happened. Because of Christ, many rose up and were saved. Many grew in their nearness to God. But because of Christ, and because of His stinging rebukes, many who are puffed up fell. 
Many who are proud, they're religious. Their hearts were hardened and then fell away from the Lord. That's the difficult part of pastoral ministry. If all I did was say good things, you know, God loves you, God cares for you, God is faithful to you, He will, you know, hold you in His hand and He will dance with you and be kind to you, and that's easy ministry, right? But I understand as a representative of Christ that because of me, through my ministry, people will be saved. And some will be will grow in their walks with Christ. At the same time, because of me, some will fall as I preach the word. Some, their hearts will get harder because of my ministry, because of my preaching. And they'll get more angry with God, more close to scriptures because of me. And I must do both. And that is test of faithful ministry where I must take risks, proclaim God's word. And some of you get hurt because of our our ministry, of our teaching, of our counsel, our shepherding. But that's part of the ministry. Well, same thing in the home. Same thing with our wives and with our children. A test of a spiritual shepherd at home is he encourages his wife, he loves her, he cares for her. But because he cares for God's glory more, he has tough talks with her. He hurts her. He makes her cry. Not because he's a picky eater. Not because he leaves his socks around the house. Not because of his selfishness. No, because he calls her out and he points out areas in our life where she's, she doesn't see clearly, she doesn't rightly know, she's not following Christ. And so she cries and he talks through her tears. He cries with her. Right? They, they grieve together at sin that entered into the camp and he walks her through tenderly but firmly and that is a test of spiritual leadership. Are you doing that? Are you doing that? And are you doing that with your children? Are you afraid of your children so you don't restrain them? You let them be out of control. You let them be. You let them disrespect you and your wife and walk all over the family because you are afraid. You just want to do good things for them. You take them to Disneyland you know, soccer leagues, baseball, all these things, basketball, and you just buy them things in the hopes that that will change them or you hurt them. Right? Spiritually, right? Spiritually, with the Word of God and you apply the rod, you discipline them according to the Scriptures so that you would drive foolishness from their hearts, cause their hearts to be humble. And thus you're caring for their souls. How are you doing as a leader of your family? Are you being a father to your children or are you just being a grandfather to your children? Right? I can't wait to be a grandfather. Right? I'm just going to buy them candy. Right? I'm going to give them Diet Coke. Right? I'm going to just take them out, frozen yogurt and play. And when they have temper tantrums, give them back. Here, Ethan. Elizabeth, your kid. Right? Take them away from me. 
right? When they're in a better mood, come back, right? Grandfathers, we just enjoy grandchildren. But fathers, it's not time to play. It's not time for joy solely. It's time for work. It's time for sowing. It's time to, to pay the price of parenting. Are you doing that? Finally, do you understand that the spiritual life of the family is the responsibility of the father, is of the husband? So, look at your wife. How is she doing? She's doing well spiritually? Then good for you, brother. Good for you. Thank God for you. We're running the race together. How are your children? They're doing well. Right? They're being taught the word. You're sowing God's word, godly examples. And they're flourishing in their relationship with you. They're loyal to you. They might not be loyal to Christ yet. They, they're haters of Christ because they're unregenerate. But they're loyal to you. They love you. Right? They're submissive to you. They're under your domain of oversight. Good job, brother. Our hearts are together. But if your wife is wilting spiritually... Your wife's not doing well. She's getting stronger and you're getting weaker. She's getting more confident, more assertive, and you're being more passive. And your children more and more are asserting themselves and they're unruly and out of control and disobedient. You need to understand it's your responsibility. It's my responsibility. It's not Cornerstone's responsibility. It's not the Sunday school teacher's responsibility. We don't blame Art and Denise, right? We don't blame the Sunday school teachers. Right? We, we brought the kids. What more do you want, right? Now it's your, your job to fix them and give them to, to us all, all obedient. It's not Christian school's responsibility. It's not the village, right? No. No, it's the parent's job. And it's the father's job. Husband, ministers... That's how we work, right? The elders, pastors, we minister to flock shepherds, and flock shepherds minister to small group leaders, and small group leaders minister to the body. So at home, I minister to my wife. I date my wife, right? I care for her soul. I ask her how she's doing, and I want to give her every opportunity to succeed in her walk, in her relationships, in her, in her uh, raising the children. I invest in my wife, and then she's in the front lines with the children. When I'm there, I'm in the front lines with her, but most of the time I'm not. I'm, I'm at work. I'm doing ministry. She's doing the front line. So children are a reflection of the parents. The wife is a reflection of the husband. So ultimately, the man is responsible. Do you accept that responsibility? On this Father's Day, may it be a day of where it sobers us. Right? It may not be a day of like free meals and gifts and just kind of having fun. Maybe a day where we are reminded of the great power that we have given by God. What great influence we have. And the great responsibility given to us. And the great privilege that God has given to us. And that through this, we have this opportunity now to make the gospel beautiful to our wives, to our children, to our church, and to this world. May we take it and run with it. Let's pray.
God, we thank you for for the gospel of Christ. Again, I just go back to the gospel because seeing all these things, these responsibilities, and seeing how I and we all fall short, so easy for us to get discouraged, to lose heart, to lose hope. So easy for our wives to lose heart as they see us and they recall all our failings and all our weaknesses to lose trust. But Lord, our our hope is not in ourselves. Our confidence is not in our abilities. Lord, our, our faith is in you. That you who began a good work will carry it unto completion the day of Christ. That until now we have not asked for anything in your name. And that if we ask in your name according to your will, you will your answer will be yes. You will answer us. And we know this is your will. And this is our prayer. That you would um, form Christ in us. In our hidden, the inner man, the hidden man of the heart, that Christ to be formed and it will be more and more Christ-like in this specific area of our ministry at home with our, to our wives and to our children. Lord, that your, the fragrant aroma of Christ will be there as we live out the Word of God at home. Oh God, we Hold on to the gospel that he who give us Christ, will you not also with him give us graciously give us all things? So we oh, fixed our eyes on the cross. We pray that you would compel each man here to engage ourselves to this privileged task of leading our lives and our homes. We thank you for uh, this Father's Day as we celebrate with our families. Uh, May this truth weigh heavy upon our hearts, but lighten because you're carrying it for us and with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.